Support for this podcast comes from the University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio and its Biggs Alzheimer's Institute, expanding the horizons of dementia research and advancing comprehensive care. Learn more at uthealthdementia.org. Hi, it's Kitty Isley here, saying welcome to the third season of 24-7, our podcast about caregiving. It's been just over a year since the person I took care of, my dad, Al Isley, died. And as sad as it's been, I feel really lucky. My dad had a peaceful death. We were helped by hospice, by my dad's caregiver, and by the assisted living place that we moved him to for the final six weeks of his life. The main thing that comforts me is knowing he lived a complete life and its ending was soft. Ending, or death, is usually where caregiving leads. You kind of know it while you're doing it, but at the same time, it's what you're trying to prevent. But what if you're asked to help someone you love bring about the end sooner? This summer, I learned about a man named Ron Deprez, who made the unimaginable decision to end his life. Ron Deprez was a well-known public health expert and an epidemiologist in Maine. His career took him around the world to research and consult on what makes a society healthy. He traveled almost everywhere, working with the World Health Organization and others. But what he really loved was his home state of Maine. My dad was a born and raised Mainer, born in Lewiston, Maine. This is Esme Deprez, Ron's daughter. Uh, very poor, grew up with three siblings. His mom raised him mostly. His dad left when he was young. So he partially raised himself. He had a really strong work ethic and just you know, seemingly could do anything he put his mind to. And Ron did put his mind to a lot of things. He learned how to build houses on summer jobs and eventually built his own. He earned a PhD and later another degree in public health from Harvard. And physically, the man ran 18 marathons. Even into his 70s, he was skiing, biking, rock climbing, and doing yoga. So he just had this kind of insatiable you know, curiosity for the world and for learning how to do things himself. That was definitely a big thing with my dad. He was really somebody that valued independence and freedom and was interested in doing it himself um, if he could. He also was very cheap, like a good Mainer, so he wanted to always do things himself around the house or whatnot so he could save a buck as well. Ron Deprez wanted to make everyone as healthy as he was. Here he is on Maine Public Television in 2017. We're also talking about access to non-medical services like mm -hmm. walking paths, like better food. That's the area of access that we lack in this country. Just a year after he spoke on that TV panel, Ron's health started breaking down fast. His balance was causing serious problems. His legs cramped at night. His right arm became so weak he couldn't hold his baby granddaughter. Despite doctors' warnings, Ron didn't want to believe something was seriously wrong. Still, he began taping an audio diary of his memories for his family. This is called mentors. We all have mentors in our life. When you grow up poor and you have a father who's never there, 
and never really was your mentor, it means that you may not have a mentor for a while. And every, I think, child's life, particularly boys, they need mentors. My mother was Ron didn't know it, but he was battling ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. ALS is an incurable condition that ruins the control of muscles needed for moving, swallowing, and eventually breathing. In April of 2020, Ron Prez became one of the first people in Maine to end his life using the state's aid in dying law, and he enlisted his daughter Esme to help him do it. Anyway, that was my spiel on mentors for now. My interview with Ron Prez's daughter Esme might be triggering for some people. Esme talks frankly about how she helped her dad die. She did exhaustive research into the legal and medical requirements that would allow her to help her dad. Esme later wrote about the experience in a moving 5,000-word story for Bloomberg News. That's where she works as an investigative reporter. In her article, she explains how, in the winter of 2018, she and her brother started to notice a few things wrong with their dad. Ron was spending the ski season in California, in a mountain town about six hours from where Esme and her husband lived. And we would go up there and go skiing with him all the time. That was a big thing within my family. We would always go skiing together. And he was skiing, you know, most every day. He was still super active at that point. But he had a really bad fall in a parking lot one day at the mountain after he was skiing. And so that fall was kind of the first indication in hindsight that something was up. But it became clear kind of over the the year or two that came after that, more and more of his body was failing. He was just getting progressively weaker on his right arm. His knee you know, was getting less strong. His balance was off. So just a, just a few symptoms that you know could have been attributed to anything. And early on, he did have a doctor say, well, you know, it might be ALS, but he really ignored that um, potential diagnosis. ALS is a pretty hard disease to diagnose. It's called a diagnosis of exclusion. There's not a test you can take to say, yes, you have ALS or not. Basically, you have to rule out a bunch of other diseases that it could be. And then doctors land on ALS as kind of as a last conclusion. So my dad was pretty adamant about finding other reasons that his body could be failing him. He did not want to believe that it was ALS for a long time. Esme's dad had surgery, twice on his knee and once on his neck to help the weakness in his arm. And it was really after those surgeries that it became clear that whatever they were trying to fix in those surgeries, that was not what was causing the problem. Rhonda Prez had good reason to want to find something other than ALS as the cause. It's a frightening diagnosis. It basically causes your nerve cells to degenerate and die, turns your muscles to mush, and deprives your brain of the ability to voluntarily control the movements evolved in talking and swallowing. Patients end up losing their ability to walk, they grow prone to choking, labored breathing, and pneumonia. And typically, you know, you have maybe a three to five year prognosis after you notice the onset of symptoms. And then eventually the body literally suffocates itself. That's how you die from ALS if you don't die of something else before. It's horrifying. It's horrifying for everybody. It felt particularly cruel and kind in a way that ALS takes down your body, but it, it leaves intact your mind. So for my dad, 
I mean, he could notice everything about his body failing him. So he was just watching his body deteriorate day by day. And that was total torture for him. A year after her dad's fall in the parking lot and his subsequent troubles, Esme gave birth to her first child, a daughter. She was focused on her newborn, but was aware something was really wrong with her dad. I went to visit him four times during that time from California to Maine. And every time I saw his body was deteriorating more and more. At that point, he was staying with his girlfriend at the time, and she was providing incredible care. But over as the year went on, you know, it became clear that he was going to need more help. You know, she was getting burnt out, uh, understandably. And so we had some home health aides come in and help him, but it was only for, you know, a couple hours a day. It wasn't, it wasn't a ton of care in part because he was so adamant that he just didn't, he didn't want it. He didn't quote unquote need it. But at the same time, he's starting to tape record memories, his memories on, I guess, his phone. And so he's aware that time may be shortening. Okay. This is uh, my life in the building trades. In high school, I worked mostly first at the caddy for three years in Riverside Golf Course. And I worked. So even though he may not be wanting more care, he's, I think, in part of his mind, he must know this is getting really serious or he wouldn't be trying to record these memories. Yeah, I think that I think that's right. I never asked him why he recorded those. I just was thrilled every time I received one. So that was my journey into uh, plumbing, wiring, uh, laying bricks, laying blocks, mixing water. And of course, carpentry, I learned because I had a house and home. And I, he clearly was kind of getting weaker in body and in spirit, too. I mean, he wasn't he wasn't super upfront about the fact that he was probably internally confronting his own mortality, but as you as you indicate, I mean, I think the fact that he was recording these memories and sending them to me, you know, something that he had never done ever before uh, does say something about his internal mindset and perhaps the kind of ambivalent recognition that he was acknowledging within himself that maybe he's he's staring down the last, you know, months, years of his life. By March of 2020, with COVID on the horizon, Esme had a work trip planned to New York. She decided to bring her husband and daughter along in case they needed to be closer to her dad if travel shut down. And it was during my time in New York uh, when I got a text message from my dad indicating that, you know, things were going south more quickly than we thought and that he was hoping to explore uh, aid and dying and that he would need my help in doing that. And I looked down at my phone. I can remember the diner I was sitting at. It was not a surprise, but obviously news like that is never um, not shocking. And so you know, I just, I kind of, I think I just shook my head and it was just like, okay. The state of Maine had recently passed an aid in dying law. The law allows a physician in some circumstances to prescribe life-ending medication for someone who is mentally competent, but terminally ill and who has a prognosis of less than six months. Aid in dying can allow people in such situations end their lives peacefully. It's legal in 10 states and the District of Columbia. 
it didn't require a lot of thinking. It wasn't like I had a conversation with myself of, am I going to help him or not? It was kind of like, my dad needs my help and yeah, I'm going to help him. When we come back, how Esme and her family spent her father's final day. I'm Kitty Isley. You're listening to 24-7, a podcast about caregiving. The University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio is proud to support the 24-7 podcast. Its Biggs Alzheimer's Institute is expanding the horizons of Alzheimer's research while supporting everyone involved in dementia care, from patients and families to healthcare professionals. Learn more about the free online programs and educational resources at uthealthdementia.org. This is 24-7, a podcast about caregiving. I'm Kitty Isley. Put yourself in Esme Dupre's shoes. Your dad texts you and says, I need you to help me end my life. Esme had no knowledge of how to do this, but she knew that her dad, Ron, remember, he's a public health expert, understood the laws in Maine. Still, it's one thing to know something is possible. It's another thing to know how to do it. Part of the difficulty of this journey was just figuring out what the law required. You know, his doctor had no idea what to do. So I immediately, you know, took a leave of absence from work and just set about kind of researching, you know, everything that it would take to get my dad qualified for aid in dying. Obviously, this is an extreme act, not suited to most people. And you don't, you know, understandably, lawmakers didn't want people being able to, you know, decide overnight that they were going to do this. So you, there are a number of legislative hurdles that you have to jump through in order to qualify for the law. And that process, you know, takes a few weeks to do, um, if not longer. You explain really clearly in your story for Bloomberg that your dad's decision or request was not just end-of-life care where he doesn't want food or water. It's active and that there's a difference. Can you explain that? So, right. My dad, like a lot of us, uh, had an advanced directive saying that he didn't want to be given, you know, life-saving nutrition or hydration in the case of terminal illness. But aid in dying takes that takes that passive approach further and it takes you into the proactive approach, the proactive hastening of death. It's when you get life-ending drugs prescribed by your physician and it allows you to proactively hasten the end. These laws are for people that are already dying. So historically, this way of dying has been called physician-assisted suicide. That term has become quite dated uh, as we've you know, learned more about the process and also just learned more about the word suicide and whether or not that's a good fit. And what aid and dying advocates will tell you now, and I think what my dad would have said was, this is not suicide as we culturally understand that word. These people that use aid and dying, like my dad, are already dying. They are going to die quite imminently. So this allows them to just go a little bit sooner on their own terms, trying to prevent the suffering that can come from the final ravages of an illness like cancer or ALS. So you're doing all of this work for him. I take it so that he can accomplish this while I think legally he is required to um, take the pills on his own, under his own steam. You can't assist him 
in that. Is that correct? Like there's a timeline on this that needs to be accomplished before he loses all his motor skills? Yeah, so let's be clear about what aid in dying is. Aid in dying statutes in the U.S. are specifically written to not allow for euthanasia. So euthanasia is, you know, a big catch-all term that gets used wrong all the time. Um, euthanasia refers to when another person, you know, kind of intervenes. So a doctor, for example, administers a lethal injection. That would be euthanasia. The aid in dying statutes in the U.S. do not permit euthanasia, and they do that in part by requiring self-administration of the drugs. So this means it has to be the patient that essentially commits the final act. So for example, for my dad, the drugs, um, you know, they come in a powdered form, you mix them with liquid, and then in my dad's case, he would have to administer them himself, the drugs, meaning I mean, hold the glass and drink the drugs uh, down. For example, in his case, I couldn't have, you know, poured the medication down his throat. That would have been considered going too far. So this actually presents a lot of problems for patients like those with ALS because ALS, by definition, inhibits your motor skills. In the case of my dad, it can start to weaken and deteriorate and essentially cause you to lose all uh, ability to use your extremities. Um, some ALS patients lose the ability to swallow which would obviously prob be problematic for, um, for when it comes to swallowing uh, drugs of any kind. For my dad, his ALS impacted his extremities first. So by the time he died, his right arm was almost completely useless and his left arm was starting to go as well. My dad's line in the sand had been feeding himself. When he could no longer feed himself, he didn't want to be uh, around for that. He didn't want to have to get help with something so fundamental as feeding himself. But when it came to the aid and dying statute, he had to be able to self-administer the drug. Now, at the time, we understood that to mean he had the, to hold the cup up to his lips. And so, you know, it put a little pressure on him to strike this balance between trying to, you know, live as long as he wanted to, but also, you know, staring down a deadline of when he may or may not lose the function, you know, complete functionality of his arms to be able to self-administer the drugs. I mean, that is actually not how ALS works. You don't go to bed one night uh, and wake up the next morning with, you know, radically different um, use of your arms. It's a much slower progression than that. But at the time, he did not want to die by suffocation as ALS does to you. And so he felt um, this time pressure to self-administer the drugs before he lost his ability to do so. On the run-up to this, you're both looking for ways for him to stay alive. You've talked to physicians. You look into the FDA. You take him to the Mayo Clinic before all, I guess, before COVID. How did you balance this in your head? How are you not in paralysis? And you've got a baby and it's the pandemic. Like, as a caregiver, what are you thinking and doing to keep yourself sane? I I'm an investigative reporter by profession, and I don't think it's an accident that that has been the profession I've chosen. I mean, when I feel out of control or confused, I mean, I dive hard and deep and try to learn as much about something as I possibly can, sometimes to my own mental health detriment, but that's just kind of what I know to do. And it does allow me to kind of gain a sense of control if I can at least understand something. So you know, I think that's part of the reason why my dad essentially came to me and deputized me to pursue, to help him pursue the aid and dying death in, that, in the way that he did. 
he knew that I would dive right in and, and try to, you know, learn everything I can and, and figure things out so he could, he could accomplish this. So I think just by virtue of plunging into this material as macabre and like awful as it was, you know, it was what my dad wanted. My dad was a my way or the highway type of guy. He was not somebody that was asking me, hey, yes, do you think I should do this? He was saying, yes, this is what's happening and I need your help. And I knew my dad well enough and I loved him enough to know that he was going to do this. He needed my help. So I think that, you know, in some ways helped eliminate any kind of sense of um, questioning about whether I was going to help him or not. It just was, I was going to do this. And it was horribly sad. I cried a ton. It was also pretty frustrating and maddening in a way because we didn't really know what was going on. I mean, obviously in hindsight now I can tell the story and it's pretty succinct, but at the time, you know, there was obviously a lot of, a lot of uncertainty. One thing stood in the way of Ron Dupre's ability to legally end his life. He needed a formal diagnosis of a terminal illness. Without that, we couldn't move forward with qualifying for aid and dying because you need, that's a crucial component. You need a diagnosis of a terminal illness. This gets back to the, this notion that he was really had been in denial that ALS was the cause of his body's decline. And so that was really emerged as one of the sticking points to get past. Eventually, I ended up making him uh, a telemedicine appointment with, uh, with a doctor that he had seen years prior at Mass General. And as soon as she saw him on the video chat, you know, she could see how much his body had deteriorated. And it was, it, it was very clear that it was ALS at that point. The pieces fell into place after Ron's diagnosis. His doctor wrote the prescription. Esme went to pick up the drugs in Portland and returned with a white paper bag filled with her dad's lethal medicine. And after I drove to the pharmacy in his truck, just a sense of calm came over him that, you know, he was now in control. He could take them when he was ready and he could decide, you know, when, when he was going to die. He, he no longer had to delegate that authority and and all the uncertainty that came with that to his disease, to ALS. He could be the one in charge. Shortly after that, her dad announces it's time. He wants to drive up the coast to die in the home he built in Deer Isle, Maine. When they get there, Esme writes, her husband carried her father piggyback from the car into the house. I asked Esme to read from her Bloomberg story, about the family's last day together. I slept beside my dad that night in his bed, waking to help him adjust his arms, drink water, and sit up to pee. I dripped blue drops of morphine into his mouth to ease the aches and help him sleep. It was intimate, odd, and beautiful, a role reversal neither of us had foreseen. I opened my eyes in the morning to find his trained upward through the skylight. Treat thoughts like clouds, he said. Just watch them pass by. That was Monday, which he'd said would be the day. We gathered around him, seated in the swivel chair that I'd helped him pick out years prior to gaze out the windows at the Atlantic Ocean. We rummaged through the plastic storage bins where he'd tossed thousands of old photos over the years. We found a black and white print of his father from the 1940s that he hadn't seen in ages, and it made him beam. 
we came across fading negatives of a naked woman, and we laughed. The pharmacy had enclosed precise directions. The drugs had to be taken on an empty stomach. But as the hours wore on, he kept wanting to eat. Sourdough hard pretzels, a chocolate RX bar, tinned calamari and crackers with cheese. Soon enough, it was dinner time, and Alex made my dad's favorite, pasta with clams, freshly dug by a neighbor from the flats in front of the house and dropped off that morning. We sat around the dinner table and drank good wine and talked about the women who'd come and gone in my dad's life. He asked us which one we liked best. The specter of death hung over us, but after so many months plunged into the mental anguish of his illness, he could live in the now. He no longer feared his deteriorating body or the prospect of a prolonged death. If only for a day, we had our dad back. Those last two days, you know, were incredibly sad, but they were also wonderful. I mean, my brother at that time, he was living in California. He um, had flown into Deer Isle as well. So it was my dad and my brother and my husband and my daughter. And, you know, we hadn't all been together like that in a while. So the time has come. What happens and how does this happen? Like most of us don't have to be familiar with this. So what is the process and and tell us about how this worked with your dad? So the protocols for Aiden dying have evolved a bit over time. But for my dad, it essentially meant three drugs. First, you take a anti-nausea drug. Then you wait a little bit. And then you take what is essentially a mega dose of a drug that is used to treat a regular heartbeat but causes the heart to stop at extreme doses. That drug doesn't work right away. Um, it takes some time to work. So you have about a half an hour in between. And then, so after you take the drug that will eventually stop your heart, you take a mega dose of anti-anxiety and sedative drugs that essentially put you to sleep. And then your heart stops beating while you're already in a deep um, sedative-induced slumber. So for my dad, that just looked like he was napping for a while. I mean, the drugs were, were going through his system and eventually you know, his heart would stop. It took him about three hours for his pulse to, to finally give out. He had a strong heart. It's painless. It's painless for the patient, at least. Of course, it's incredibly painful to watch, um, but also, you know, beautiful in a way because my dad uh, had a death that was, for all intents and purposes, good and peaceful, and he didn't have to suffer through the end. And you all just stayed with him after I remember just he was in his his favorite brown leather reclining chair and I was just sitting there, you know, holding his hand and my brother was there and my husband was there and we were all just, you know, crying like crazy and listening to Simon and Garfunkel and just trying to, you know, sit there for the last few hours that we would have our dad in physical form. And at one point my brother, you know, just said, you know, he's not, that, that's not him anymore. He's not in there. And he's been on hospice, but this is just the family. There's no medical people there. Would there have been normally if it weren't COVID? 
I have since learned that um, the professional advocacy organization of aid and dying doctors, they recommend that you have a health professional there in large part to just kind of do the medical portion of this to mix the drugs and to, you know, be able to take the pulse and record the time of death. And really, I mean, that recommendation is also largely based on the idea that, you know, the family members should just be able to be family members in that point. Um, and not have to worry about also being healthcare workers. But for us, I don't think that my dad would have wanted that. Um, so we didn't have to have anybody there. And so we didn't, it was just, uh, you know, it could really just be this intimate thing with my dad and my brother and my husband and my daughter. How are you holding on to, or how are you experiencing grief? I mean, the speed of this illness in his life, the intensity of the way he chose to die, the need for you to help facilitate it. How do you carry that? At first, his death definitely felt very traumatic, I think, because in part, I mean, obviously, I, I literally watched him die and I literally handed him the drugs to to die um, along with my brother. Uh, and it all kind of moved very fast at the end. But in the intervening months and now years, I found a lot of peace in the fact that he had his had the death that he wanted and that he was not suffering physically at the end. So there's a wonderful quote um, in Atul Gawande's Being Mortal book, and it talks about how endings matter, especially, you know, for those who are left behind. And I have found that to be incredibly true. I mean, the fact that my dad could have this peaceful death that he wanted, especially as COVID was, you know, raging around the world and causing, you know, lonely deaths and chaotic hospitals. The fact that my dad could have this peaceful death that he was in control of, and we could be all around him at the time, that's brought me a ton of peace, as has being able to write about it. I mean, I still get an incredible amount of reader mail from this story, more so than any other story I've ever written by a long shot of people who just were so touched by his story and his decisions and, 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 and my helping him. I love that so many more people in the world know how, know about my dad, know how amazing he was, um, you know, in life and in death. And I can just share him with the world through the story. And then the story just keeps, keeps giving. I mean, I'm talking to you right now. I get to sit here in this room and talk about my dad again. And I love just kind of revisiting his memory and keeping him alive and, and being able to share his story with more people every day. And part of that story, what Esme learned since her father's death, is that she wasn't just helping her dad and his life. He was also doing me a favor and giving me a gift in, in allowing me to be so intimately close and connected to his final days and to his ultimate end and at the time you know that there was there was an element of that feeling unfair like dad how could you not want to do everything possible to stay here for one more minute with us but he wouldn't have been being true to himself if he did that and so I really had to learn that you know his death just like his life had been his to control it was not mine to control and kind of the greatest gift of love I could give him was to, to honor that and to help him 
you know, to the other side. This past August, Esme and her brother, her husband and now two daughters, held a memorial service, a party, she said, a celebration of Ron's life in Portland for friends and family, complete with martinis and cigars. They planned to have Ron's ashes buried near his house in Deer Isle. You can read Esme's original story from January 2021 at Bloomberg News. On the next 24-7, the story of a detective with Alzheimer's. It comes from crime novelist Walter Mosley, and now it's a TV series starring Samuel L. Jackson. I think we have a great lineup of stories for season three, writers and comedians who've put their talents to work on behalf of family caregivers, and conversations with people I just like to call magicians of care. So spread the word. 24-7 is produced by me, Kitty Isley, with Ben Henry. We had editing help from Cindy Carpian. If you have an experience caring for a parent or elderly loved one, I'd love to hear from you. Email us or send a short voice recording to 247 at tpr.org. 24-7 is a production of Texas Public Radio.